0: Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of
1: millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world.
2: This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Hi, welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm host David Knowles, and I'm here with co-host, climate editor, Ben Adler. Ben, we're here in Glasgow for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, and you had the pleasure today of interviewing our Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm. You asked her lots of different questions about the plans that she has been laying out here at COP26, And especially interesting was when you asked her about nuclear energy and whether that was something that the United States should rely more on to help cut greenhouse gas emissions. Can you tell us a little bit about what her response was to that? We'll hear the full interview in a second, but I'm just curious as to your thoughts about what she told you.
0: Yeah, what was interesting is that she was totally unequivocal she just said we're we're very bullish on it. She you know, they're full steam ahead on developing nuclear. She thinks that the newest technological advances make it both safer and more affordable, which would address the two main drawbacks to nuclear energy. And the two big advantages of it that she mentioned are that it is very low carbon, so you know, much better for the climate than fossil fuel energy. And unlike renewables, which of course are the cleanest and safest, it can reliably generate electricity when there's high demand, even if the sun isn't shining or the wind isn't blowing. And so she sees it as a, as a really integral part of the energy mix in the United States moving forward. That's something that Democrats and 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 others on the left haven't always agreed on. So I thought that was interesting and a, just a very clear statement on that
2: i've been noticing this in places I, I was down in santa cruz california the other week and there was a pro-nuclear power demonstration Wow! this is the town where i went to college and if you had told me 30 years ago that there would be a pro-nuclear demonstration i would have <laughs> said you were insane and i've seen similar action here at at cop i've been you know people come up to me and give me stickers you know promoting nuclear energy do you think that this idea is going to gain traction in the U.S. going forward?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's really interesting what you just said about Santa Cruz. I've never had the privilege of going there, unfortunately. But my impression is it's sort of like a hippie town, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's somewhere that you would not expect to be pro-nuclear because historically the hippies hated nukes. Right. And if there's a movement for it there, you know, it, it there's it can happen anywhere, it sounds like. So yeah, I think, that's, I think it's indicative of, of the same thing that we saw today with Granholm. Secretary Granholm, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. You I bet. know you have a very busy schedule while you're here. You've announced a number of new initiatives. One of them, which you just announced this morning, is the carbon removal mm-hmm. uh, earth Right. And I actually recently did a story about carbon removal. And so I understand and I also understand from your event today that the technology already exists Mm -hmm. and the purpose of the research that you're going to perform is to lower the price to make more economically feasible. But my question is, other than a few corporations like Microsoft that was at your event who are choosing to pay for carbon removal voluntarily, who's going to pay for it?
1: Well, first of all, we have to take it to scale to bring the price down. That's what the carbon shot is all about, to make sure that we are able to achieve this technology at $100 net per ton. And that, if we're able to get it down, and if we're able to make sure that the technology is available on international markets, we know that there is a price for carbon in many places, like in Canada, like in Europe. And so the technology, of course, will be universally helpful no matter where it is because CO2 doesn't know geographic borders.
0: And you also announced an initiative yesterday called the Net Zero World Initiative, yeah. is that right? Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, it's a technology sharing with other countries?
1: Actually, what it is, is to help countries who want to partner with us to achieve their higher ambitions. So, for example, there may be countries like Indonesia who ask for our help with our 17 national labs to do a roadmap with them of the technology paths that are most likely to get them to net zero. So, you know, in Indonesia, who knows? It might be wind, it might be solar, it might be geothermal. There may be any number of paths, but the laboratories have the best ability to be able to discern which paths, what sequence, what the grid looks like, what needs to happen in order to achieve those goals.
0: That's branded as uh, part of the Build Back Better world. world. Mm -hmm. Um, Does that mean the funding for it is in Build Back Better?
1: Actually, we announced it with a number of funders, including the Breakthrough Energy, the Bezos Fund, Rockefeller Foundation, So it's going to be in partnership and I would uh, say that the Development Finance Corporation is also eager to fund it. The bottom line is I think there's a lot of private sector interest in funding projects for countries that want to reduce their CO2 footprint and that want to get to 100% clean energy, but they want to make sure that there's a plan and a roadmap that makes sense and so that's what this is a precursor to those investments so that the countries uh, have a roadmap that investors feel confident about.
0: There's one other program that you announced right before you came here that I want to ask about, which is the super truck mm-hmm. funding. If you could just explain what what you mean by super trucks, and in particular, you know, the language around these government program announcements often says, you know, here's the amount of money that we're gonna spend, in this case, I believe it was 127 mm-hmm. million. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they say we're gonna try to deploy super trucks or something like that. And it's not clear, I think, to the average person, what exactly is the money, being spent on and how exactly does it lead to cleaner trucks on the road and in turn lower emissions. Yeah,
1: well the super truck program has been in place for a number of years. Previously it had focused on efficiency for internal combustion engine vehicles, for gas powered trucks. This year we said no, the super truck initiative is really gonna focus on electric trucks, whether they're battery electric or hydrogen fuel cell. And so it's done in partnership with the private sector who are developing these technologies to make sure that we work out all the bugs so that we can take it to scale. So it is a a, a joint public-private partnership with companies that have these trucks that want to make sure that they can have and develop fleets of clean energy vehicles and we also know of course that trucking and uh, long-haul trucking semi-trucks that's one of the hardest to decarbonize from a transportation sector point of view. So we wanna make sure we bring that down.
0: So the technical issue there is the range, the issue of the charge lasting enough for a long haul truck. Yeah, it
1: might be the range. It might be the density of the battery that's associated with the range. It might be making sure that the hydrogen fuel cell technology is enough to get you to the range you want and that there may be some issues with respect to charging Uh, electric, maybe issues with respect to fueling and fleets. So all of the full value stream of, the potential technical glitches need to be worked out so that we can take it to scale.
0: One of the things that you've talked about here is all the money in the Build Back Better proposal for Department of Energy programs that would go towards uh, promoting clean energy. Mm -hmm. That is one key component of President Biden's plan to achieve a 50% reduction in emissions from 2005 levels by 2030. But the bill hasn't passed. Right. So, What time is it? <laughs> well, you're going to be waiting a little longer than that, from what I agreed about, yeah. about what Joe Manchin has to say. So my question is, when you meet with other world leaders, do they believe that the United States is actually going to fulfill this promise? And how, if not, how would you persuade them? How would you persuade the skeptics outside who are protesting today that I was talking to?
1: Well. What I can tell you is that here the countries who are at COP have uniformly expressed that they are so glad that the United States is committed to the goals that the president has set, including 100% clean electricity by 2035. They know the president is working really hard to get this through Congress. There is going to be a vote today in the House. If that vote happens, as we believe it will, at least the infrastructure bill will be passed and the reconciliation, the second step of it, the Build Back Better agenda, will go to the Senate, maybe tinkered with over there. But the bottom line is the president feels very confident that he has the votes both in the House and the Senate to get this through and we're excited to implement.
0: Similar question on the executive. Rules and so forth, uh, pro, you know, programmatic decisions that you make through executive authority. Currently, the Republicans in the Senate or a centrist from West Virginia doesn't get to stop that. But the next president could be a Republican. Mm-hmm. So how do you assure, for instance, your partners internationally, that the Net Zero World Initiative won't be dismantled by the, you know, the second term of Donald Trump?
1: Well, one can never be sure, right, that that the policies that you put in place won't be amended by a future Congress. However, if we are able to get the, for example, demonstration projects and the technologies that we're talking about in the ground and ready to go, that's much more difficult to uproot. So it's why we've got to accelerate. I mean, our hair should be on fire because the planet is on fire no matter what, but we will be accelerating the deployment of these technologies so that we can, in fact, get them in the ground, get the solar panels up, get the grid investments that are necessary to add the renewable energy capacity that we have to. We're going to do all of that on steroids over the next three years.
0: One last question is nuclear, something that probably a lot of people don't don't know. In fact, Rick Perry famously didn't know before he became your predecessor in this role. Uh, Most of what the Department of Energy does is actually safeguard the nuclear uh, Stockpile um, and reactors, uh, and you know regulate nuclear. Um, what is the administration's? position on new nuclear, which is obviously a controversial issue on the left because it's clean but also can be dangerous and environmentally dangerous. Well,
1: uh, we are very uh, bullish on these advanced nuclear reactors. Uh, we have in fact invested a lot of money in the research and development of those. Uh, we are very supportive of that. Half of the United States' clean power now, when I say clean, I'm talking about net zero carbon emissions, is through the nuclear fleet. Um, that's, that's, if you look at the, cl- it, the overall power, it's about 20%. Globally, 29% of the clean power is, is nuclear. These nuclear, these advanced nuclear reactors and the existing fleet are safe. We have the gold standard of regulation in the United States. The question is this because they do not generate and they're baseload power, they're, you know, the, the really the, the holy grail is to identify clean baseload power clean baseload power. Nuclear is dispatchable, clean baseload power. So we, we want to be able to bring more on. Now the kick is that it is expensive. Nuclear is more expensive. And so we want to make sure that we these smaller modular reactors are less expensive. There have been uh, a number of them, a couple of them that have uh, are on a sort of pilot, um, pilot demonstration mode. For example, TerraPower in Wyoming. Actually put that small uh, advanced reactor Uh, adjacent to a retired coal plant. And because the infrastructure is there to carry the power away, it made perfect sense. And those coal miners who were working at the plant now have an opportunity for a job at the nuclear facility. So we're excited about nuclear, actually.